when you're lobbying for the approval of others or lobbying to bring others along, you always have to ask yourself, why am I doing that? Am I doing that because their buy-in is necessary to advance my insight? Or am I doing that to assuage me that I might be wrong because I'm nervous? The reason why we don't fully commit often, it's not because we are necessarily afraid of what's going to happen. It's because we haven't processed the worst case scenario and assimilated that information and realized, all right, I'll be all right. Come on this journey with me. Each week when you join me, we are going to chase down our goals, overcome adversity, and set you up for a better tomorrow. I'm ready for my close-up. Hi, and welcome back. I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. Matt Higgins is co-founder and CEO of private investment firm RSE Ventures and an executive fellow at Harvard Business School, where he co-teaches the course Moving Beyond DTC. A guest shark on ABC Shark Tank seasons 10 and 11, he will soon star in a new spinoff, Business Hunters, also executive produced by Mark Burnett. Matt, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So one of the things I love about your story, Matt, the more that I researched you and was reading your new book, Burn the Boats, was the level of success that you've created in your life is incredible. However, most people would be shocked and they definitely wouldn't imagine that you grew up the way that you did. And I'm just hoping you can share a little glimpse into what it was like growing up in your situation with a single mom and some of the bold moves and decisions you made at a very young age. Yeah, I um, and I'm glad we're starting there because I always say I, I want to be known more from where I began rather than where I end up. Um, and and I always have to pull forward my origin story in order to do that. You know, Shark Tank, all these shiny objects, it's easy to see me a certain way. Whereas what I really want to be seen is a 16-year-old kid who dropped out of high school. So um, I grew up in Queens, New York. Shout out to anybody out there from Queens or New York City. And I was raised by a single mom who was amazing. My earliest memories are watching her deal with a lot of health issues. Um, she just had, she ended up being um, very obese and had all sorts of comorbid issues that went along with it. But she also was really desperate to make something out of her life, um, the product of abuse. She left my dad when I was about nine years old and she had been a high school dropout and she was always insecure and ashamed about that fact. And I watched her go to Queensboro Community College, uh, get her GD, and then enroll in, in Queens College. And so my earliest memories were the time before and the time after. You know, the time after was filled with a sense of dignity and hope for becoming a college student. And she would take this little boy with her to classes on Saturday and I'd sit in the back of the room and watch my mother, my head on the desk thinking like, why are we here? Like, what, what, what is she doing? And I remember her reporting back to me, like, I got this, you know, an A in history and Dr. Factor told me that I'm smart, you know, for the first time. So, you know, one, one view is education and the power of transcendence. And the other view was desperation, right? Like little kid, why do we have nothing to eat? Why are we taking a bus for an hour and a half in order to go to a food pantry? Don't they have food pantries where we live? You know, shame. And uh, I always say that, uh, you know, a gourmet meal in my house was this block of government cheese from the, which I keep on my desk, by the way, as a reminder. Um, so just poverty and selling flowers on street corners. I was that little kid on Mother's Day who knocked on your window and said, excuse me, sir, would you like to buy for your wife? Like just every kind of thing. So these things are colliding. And as time went on, you know, you get more desperate as a kid and you, and any kid who's a product of a single parent could relate to this out there. It's like, you wish there would be a white knight that would come along. In my case, I wish there was a, the hero man, male figure who would take care of my mom. Cause I was tired of taking care of her. And so as desperation grew, I was like, I got to do something radical to change my circumstances. 
And I came up with this crazy idea that I was going to drop out of high school uh, at 16 years old. Well, it, yes, it does sound crazy as a mother of a 15 year old. If he ever came home one day and told me he was ju- dropping out of school, I would literally I would fall think, on the good, ground. Good man, you took away the most salient points for this interview. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. It sounds really aggressive. However, looking back now, this is the beginning of your own burn the boats life and path to such ultimate success. However, everyone in the world was second guessing you when you announced this, correct? Yeah, let me let me explain my takeaways because I agree. I don't want your 15-year-old son to uh, you know take away the lo- the wrong lesson. But yeah, you know, I always say this when you are concealing what's really going on in your life. Um, the people who you get feedback from don't have full context because you're hiding it, right? So in my case, what was I hiding? I was hiding poverty. I was wearing my Jordache jeans back then, dating myself. But uh, you know, I had I looked I looked typical, right? Nobody knew I was going home and sleeping on a dorguan mattress on the floor. My mother would literally, literally wail through the night in pain. You know, just I was bathing her, like all sorts of things. When you're a kid, like you don't want any of that. Like I don't want to pretend that I was this. Oh, what a sweet child. Like no, I was frustrated. I wanted a normal life. So I talked to my folks at school. And uh, when I came up with this crazy plan, wait, if my mother was able to go to college with a GED, uh, you know, unintentionally, what if I were to drop out of high school, get a GED at 16, I could go from making $3.75 at McDonald's or $5 at a deli and suddenly make $9 an hour. That was the whole genesis. If I could go to college and be a college student, I'd look through the penny saver newspaper and it says, you know, college students only. I thought, well, I don't know what this college student moniker means, but I'm going to go get it. And then I remember talking to my guidance counselor saying like, you will never shake the stigma of dropping out. It's a crazy plan. It is a crazy plan. And that was the second burn the boats inside I had. In order to stick to your conviction, you have to give yourself no option but to go all in. Because even in the beginning, I thought, you know, there was a lot of pressure. We'll just see how, see if you can, you know, pass a couple of more classes, like give it more time. And then I realized I, in order to do this, I need to fail everything. I need to get left back over and over again and fully commit to being a total degenerate. And that's what I did. I, I failed every single class for two years, sat in the same room in the back, except for typing. I, fa- I passed typing and I still type 100 words a minute. Uh, so this is to your 15-year-old son. Again, wrong takeaways. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I had to execute. And I remember the last day of school, I had to return my textbooks and I walked into my science teacher. I talk about this in the Burn the Boats and it's a true story. I go to hand my book back. He doesn't look up because what's this? I said, it's my, my textbook. Today's my last day. And he looks straight. He goes, Higgins, what a waste. I'll see you at McDonald's. And it just, and I remember all the classes laughing and I'm Irish and I feel like I'm going to pass out. And then I start walking out the door and then I turn around and I say to him, you know, uh, Mr. Rosenthal, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I bought it. Something to that effect. And all the clouds oh, snap, you're going to take that or whatever. And then I walked outside the steps of Cardoza High School and I lit up a cigarette and I thought he's probably right. Like <laughs> statistically, this is going to dictate a very bad outcome. I picked myself up off those steps. Um, I went to Springfield Gardens High School on standby. I took my GED. I got a great score, enrolled in Queens College and went back to my prom as as captain of the debate team. And I remember the look on the face of Mrs. Vega, Mr. Miss, Mr. Barkin, I remember all the names, Mr. Rosenthal. And it went from one of pity, right? To one of admiration with one move. So the same people who at a moment thought you're out of your mind were like, a boy, you know? And that's the other point. When you make these radical burn the votes moves, like don't worry about what people say now because they can't see what you see. They couldn't see that my mother was slipping away and she was gonna die. She could, they couldn't see that I was getting more self-destructive. 
you know, I was just like, I was having really intrusive thoughts about my life. I was just really unhappy. And so they didn't know any of that. And yet at the end, they were like, they saw all the pieces together. So to anybody out there, and part of the premise of the book is to give you the comfort to be alone on the bleeding edge with your own insights, because it's lonely. But the payoff is everybody comes along and says, you know, attaboy. Okay. Well, when you were just describing that story of when you told your high school teacher that you, the only way you were going to be at McDonald's is when you owned the franchise. When I was reading the book, I could hear you telling the story, Matt, you're a great storyteller. And actually when you were telling the story in the book, you weren't smoking a cigarette outside. You were smoking a Marlboro. That's what just popped into my mind. How funny is that? So my point is for everyone listening, if you like a good storyteller and really want to be pulled in by something, Matt Higgins' new book, Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential is definitely the book for you. So Matt, let's get into this book because it is so up my alley, which means it's so up my listeners' alley. Like I love a great comeback story. I love an underdog story. But more important than that, you know, my listeners are going to love that piece of it, but you did a great job of giving actionable direction in every single chapter, not only through various stories of multitudes of entrepreneurs and success stories that you've befriended through your life and and your own journey, but also through data and research. And it it was really, really compelling and eye-opening for me as a fellow author and just as someone who always wants to get better and push myself to the next level. When you start out at the beginning of the book, you use three examples that I really, oh my gosh, I got so excited reading it. Number one, you gave an example from the Old Testament, two from the iconic book, The Art of War, and then three, most recently, from the Ukrainian President Zelensky, talking about the ultimate burn the boats move. Can we start there? By the way, you're very generous. I just want to say that. You're really like a generous human being. I could tell that you get excited and animated to share somebody else's success. So that's unusual. So I just want to say thank you. Just nice to oh, see you excited. You. I'm like, oh, you're sharing my book. <laughs> this is amazing. You read it. You care. I put so much of my being into this book. It's an act of bloodletting, you know. So to hear somebody else appreciate it. Thank you. I I what I wanted to do is contextualize what does this phrase mean, burn the boats? It's too often associated with Cortez, who was a very bad man. And so I wanted to make the point, this notion of going all in and having no plan B goes back to the beginning of recorded history, right? And then zoom forward all the way up to Zelensky. And I I love talking about him in particular, because I believe there was a turning point that uh, at the moment we can't visualize because we're in the middle of it. And that's when uh, then conventional wisdom, including the CIA and the United States government, had concluded there is zero chance that he's going to win. And not only that, he's going to be assassinated. So out of pity, they were like, maybe we should offer the guy a ride. (laughs) And there was this moment when he had uh, gotten a call, and I guess they leaked it brilliantly, when the U.S. government said, basically, we'd like to help extricate you from the situation. And his response, supposedly, was, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And that one simple statement telegraphed both the Ukrainians, but also the outside world, I'm prepared to die for this, right? So maybe that was self-talk, but it was it was the first moment, if you look back, where the media coverage and even the government, the behavior of the U.S. government started to pivot, that maybe we got some, this person's willing to invest in. And it was catalytic that brought everybody along, say, let's let's invest, let's go on Twitter. It became the first social media war and whatnot. So I, I use those examples to show that this principle that humans perform better without a safety net goes back to the beginning of recorded time. And we didn't need universities to teach people. It was, it was intuitive and it showed up in the 
battlefield under the most exigent circumstances when when people were outnumbered, you know, 10 to 1. Now, a lot of them were nasty folks like Caesar and whatnot. So I wanted to make it clear that it's everybody. And we can we can learn a lot from the fact that that this has been proven time and again. When I started podcasting, an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm selling my group coaching on the regular, and it is just so easy, all because I use Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soaps or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got fired. Launching my own business seemed so intimidating. I didn't know how to set up a website and I really didn't need to. Shopify does it all for you and they make it so easy. It was that breakthrough moment for me that I realized I can do this. I can go to work for myself. Thanks to Shopify. What I love about Shopify is you don't need to have all this technology information ready to, you don't need to know how to plan and run things. You just need to go to the platform, turn it on and know what you're selling. And Shopify is going to help you figure out the rest. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries, including your girl right here. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash monahan all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Monahan now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Monahan. No matter what stage you're at, they're going to make it easy. Okay, so let me guess. Like me, you get stressed out during the work week. Maybe some nights it's even really difficult to fall asleep because you have so much to do, so much pressure on you, being a parent, working, dealing with difficult clients, traffic, just all of the regular headaches that everybody's dealing with. I got you on this one. I decided to try a different approach because I was sick of feeling anxious and stressing out about falling asleep at night. Well, that's where CBD from CB Distillery came in. And wow, it has been a real change. CB Distillery's targeted formulations are made from the highest quality, clean ingredients. No fluff, no fillers, just pure, effective CBD solutions designed to help support your health. In two non-clinical surveys, 81% of customers experience more calm. 80% said CBD helped with pain after physical activity, and 90% said they slept better with CBD. If you struggle with a health concern and haven't found relief, make the change that I made to CB Distillery. With over 2 million customers and a solid 100% money-back guarantee, CB Distillery is the source to trust. I have a 20% discount to get you started. Visit cbdistillery.com and use code CONFIDENCE for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com, 
code confidence, cbdistillery.com. It's interesting to me, the examples were just so spot on and, and really connected with me specifically to President Zelensky. And it was funny, I was just watching last night with he was speaking to the House and, and Congress. And it was interesting, to your point, from a leadership perspective, when someone has truly burned the boats, gone all in, taken that massive risk, he didn't have to beg people for help at that point. People are rushing him, wanting to be a part of what people want to support him and be a part of what he's created. And it was so visibly apparent last night watching him in motion and how everyone wanting to touch him. Pelosi, I think, tried to kiss him six different times. I mean, it, it was wild to see. So for everyone listening right now, just from a leadership perspective, when you truly go all in and take the action steps to highlight what you're doing, people will want to be on board and, and be a part of that movement, correct? I had the same thought. I was watching him and I was thinking how 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 architected that speech was. All the different constituencies he was, he was trying to speak to, the American public. I know you gave uh, me tens of billions of dollars. I'm a good steward of that money. But by the way, that's an investment in your own future. Like just well every said. little thing. Well and, and, then, and then the choice to not wear a suit to me was fascinating, right? What do I want to convey? Do I want to convey that everything's fine and I'm meeting with the head of state? Or do I want to say I'm taking a break from the war and remind you of it? Like, brilliant. Actually, I watched that and had the same reaction to it and felt more convinced that he deliberately pursued a burn the boat strategy. And it, and it makes sense. You know, sometimes people can criticize. I think he's amazing, by the way. And I'm grateful that I'm living through history and getting to watch it. But you can criticize he was an actor or silly. Like, was he an actor or was he a communicator who knew how to move people and know how to touch people? Was he the perfect po person for this moment in time? I think he was. So my mission with my book was to say, some of you have heard this phrase, burn the boats in a military context. Let's appropriate it for peacetime, you know, because oftentimes we all feel like we're in a war. Let's take this concept and pull it forward into every everyday life. Well, Okay. And, and thank you for doing that because burn the boats isn't something that I had been applying to my everyday life or my business. And now reading your book, I was, you know, of course, applying it all back to my, my own self, my business, my decisions, and the times I didn't do it too. That was much more apparent to me as I was reading the book. You broke the book down into three different parts, get in the water, no turning back and build more boats. Get in the water to me. I mean, just like it really pulls you in, which I think is great because as soon as you start reading, you're not going to want to put, put this book down. You know, you're going to get through the majority of it within the first day. Well, again, like I said, not only are there these amazing stories from so many different entrepreneurs, so many businesses that had to go through these big moments, these big, scary moments, but you also give us as readers these examples for example, the anxiety study that you shared, that it's actually good to have certain levels of anxiety and, and research proves that it will drive you to more success. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I um, and, and the book for me, I think when you go on Instagram sometime, there's an inauthentic layer right now to the universe where everyone has a, a stumble story, you know, vulnerability. And then there's the arc and then the resurrection and the redemption. That's not my life. My life is full of resurrection, redemption, and regression. You know, I'm constantly taking two steps. And part of that is a constant battle with a degree of PTSD from childhood and a degree of anxiety. I am not somebody who walks into the set of Shark Tank and is like, whatever, Mark Cuban, Laura Guineer, I got this. No, I'm somebody who puts in tons of energy to go ahead and synthesize my, my doubt. 
And what I wanted to show in the, in the book from a scientific perspective and then examples is that there is what is called a level of optimal anxiety. It's a balance between if a, a certain degree of anxiety is going to propel you to excellence and make you prepare and take the steps and too much anxiety is going to leave you paralyzed and crippled. And that isn't just me saying that there's a Yerkes Dotson law that goes back to the 1920s that was you know demonstrated scientifically. But then there are all these different environments where it's been proven out and I wanted to share them. So one of the ones I talk about in the book that I love, I worked for a coach uh, with a coach called Eric Mangini, the head coach of the New York Jets. And at the time he was given the like worst um, nickname anybody could have because he can't live up to it, Mangenius, uh, because he was a mad scientist and he was like a 37-year-old guy who was always tinkering, tinkering. But one of the things he did at the time, which seemed absolutely crazy, was that he would put the players in the indoor bubble where there was tremendous you know, echo and it was really hard to hear anyway. And he would blare um, Metallica and like the worst heavy metal, Metallica is actually great, the worst heavy metal, music, heavy metal music to make it impossible for the players to hear and communicate so that they could have to use hand signals and read body language to mimic what it would be like to go to the Metro Dome when it was really loud. So he was always putting his players in these most uncomfortable, anxiety-inducing situations to get the best out of them to prepare. So I use that as an example of optimal anxiety because it's it, there's a utility to it. And then I also talk about the, in, the unoptimal anxiety, right? The crippling kind. Whereas when I went on the set of Shark Tank, I was so paralyzed that I was gonna be discovered as an imposter, that that little kid eating government cheese on Queens was gonna manifest on the set, that I didn't wanna go forward. It's like embarrassing to talk about. You know, I debated, like, should I put that in there? And I was like, if I don't put it in the book, people will see how I performed on TV and think I was a natural. And that's not useful. Believing that I was good at it uh, instinctively is not helpful. Actually, it hurts somebody who was like, well, I'm not good at TV. I'm like, well, I wasn't either. And I tell the story about how I was paralyzed the night before. I did not sleep for two days. And then I got on the set and that's when I froze. <laughs> and I feel like I had to steal my head. I, there was a moment when I feel like Mark Cuban looked over me. This did not happen, but in my head it did. And, I'm, and, and he's thinking like, who let this guy here? Like, who, who are you? And then the self-talk pulled me out of it this sort of third person super ego authority that can get you through things and sort of coaches you through it. And so in the book, I try to break that down and say, okay, what is the right way to use self-talk to get you into that state of optimal anxiety? And on the flip side, last point, the second time I went on Harvard, I had the opposite problem. This was like a layup. I was totally comfortable. Nothing bad happened. I was good at it. I felt good. And I had no anxiety and fear. And I felt a little bit bored. <laughs> so I had to say, what's my motivational system now that it's not anxiety? And I had to switch to the pursuit of excellence. So what I hope the book does is take these somewhat obvious topics that we all talk about. And we all, we all know anxiety. We know failure is good. We know, you know, like we, we know them in platitudes, but do we know them practically speaking in real examples? Do we know them with authority? Do we know them with people that we can connect to and relate to? And that's what I tried to accomplish with the book. For everyone listening right now, the takeaway here that was really powerful, great reminder for me is, and I'll use myself as an example, when I'm in a nerve wracking situation is not to say, I can do this. I can do this. I'm good enough to do this. It's to say, Heather, you got, you got this. Heather, listen right now, right? You've got to give yourself that space and put yourself in the third person as if you're coaching somebody else, correct? Yes. And do you find it annoying though, by the way that, I mean, you've done really well, incredibly successful, two-time author, you got this. I mean, amazing. 
isn't it annoying that you still have to keep doing it? I mean, maybe you don't, maybe you, you vanquished it. I haven't, even though I wrote the book, <laughs> like my book is aspirational. It's not like I, I have, just cause I have some of the answers to the test doesn't mean I can apply them, but I still have to do it every day. It's annoying. I so see it differently now. It's so funny you say that. I understand why you say that. Cause I, you know, we wish it would just be easy, but it, because I was in corporate America in the nine to five, which, you know, you hadn't been for so, so long. I was there for the majority of my career. I wasn't waking up scared. I wasn't waking up with anxiety. I was going to the man. I was, you know, I knew the routine. Everything was visible. I knew what next quarter had to come. I knew what I needed to do annually. Everything was so clear. I didn't wake up with anxiety, fear, and have to coach myself up. Cut to now, every day I'm freaking out. I'm so scared that I've got a meeting with QVC and I've got to get this deal closed and this product has to get on there. It's on me. How am I going to talk them into it? How am I going to get them to feel the passion? Oh my gosh, Heather, you've done this before. You can do this again. I've got, I get so excited that I'm talking myself into these fear moments because I know there's something potentially so great on the other other side. So I don't know. I'm like celebrating every day now because I had so many days where I wasn't pushing myself. That is the right attitude. I think me, I'm like, why can't I habituate my response to this so we can preempt having to have the self-talk? And I think the answer is, it stems from the fact that if you are like you and myself, and you're always putting yourself in these new situations that are uncomfortable, that is the thing that triggers, right? It's the it's the fight or flight response. It's like, oh, I got to overcome it. And in the pursuit of excellence, I'm going to put a lot of stress on myself. So I think it's a prerequisite. So I've come to see that pain as a feedback loop, but I still wish it wasn't. <laughs> I still wish like there would be an efficiency to it. Like, Matt, come on. I mean, you you teach at Harvard Business School. Like you've been doing it for four years. You've never taught a day in your life, but yet, nope, every day. Even talking to you, I'm like, you know, you're amazing. I read up about you. Like, I'm like, we're going to crush this interview. I'm going to put energy into it. So I guess it's by putting yourself in these unfamiliar circumstances. Well, the good news is everybody listening, you are not alone because we are all in that same boat feeling that same way. Okay. When you brought up the coach of the Jets, and I think I I have this right. You'll let me know if I don't. I thought of the story of him kissing the wife's feet and getting caught on video can we? I love that story. It was so interesting to me to hear how hard he was on himself and how you saw that as such an opportunity and how it helped to empower and change a moment, a scary moment for him. Yeah, that was on um, the coach of the Jets, Rex Ryan, the most amazing, lovely person. And uh, it, it's hard to actually tell this supposed scandal to anyone now because they don't understand. I don't really get it. What part of it was like a scandal. But at the time, there were some suggestive videos that I had gotten out to do with uh, uh, Rex idolizing his wife's feet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't make this up. And then there was this constant you know, barrage of covers on like the Post and every New York paper, everybody trying to, you know, what's going on? It's like so absurd to recount. But at the time, it was it was actually really stressful and aggravating, embarrassing for Rex. And, and uh, we had a really close relationship. And I remember talking to him. And I am that person because of my background as press secretary to the mayor, running crises, 9-11. I've been through everything that people tend to call, you know, when the crap hits the fan. And so I remember going to his office. He's pretty upset. And I said, Rex, you got it all wrong. Something to this effect. Like, you're going to go on Oprah. Like, we're going to do it like a, a 10 book deal about how to still maintain love for your wife after 25 years. Like, it's an interesting story. And he like laughed. And to this day, when he sees me, there's Oprah. The moral of that story is a couple of things. One, when 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 you shed your shame, even though this is absurd that it was shameful, but when you shed your shame, it gives permission for everyone around you to do the same. 
Two, all the catastrophization that you had about what would happen when you did it never materializes. And then you regret that you spend so much energy anticipating what might happen because it never, ever, ever happens. And third, when you're there for somebody who's going through the act of shedding shame and you could stand beside them, they will never, ever forget that. And so Rex to this day, now he owns it. Now he tells a joke, like even like a decade later, it'll st still come up on, on TV. He'll make a funny joke when it's, somebody's foot will come up. And he realized by him doing that, by him owning it, it made the players realize that, you know, he was human. So throughout this book, now when I read my own book, I'm like, I really, I shared that. But throughout the book, there's attempts for me to model what shedding shame looks like and show by virtue of the fact that I'm still standing, still writing the book, still you know, achieving new things, and it didn't matter. I talk about my GED when I can instead talk about my honorary PhD. I talk about Cardoza High School and government cheese when I could talk about Harvard Business School in Boston, right? Like, I don't want to airbrush the end. I want to show the beginning so that you could see this journey of, of, of shedding shame. And that's exactly what happened to Rex Ryan. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25? NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Nothing is as powerful as having all of the information you need in one place to make better decisions. And right now is a time with NetSuite's unprecedented offer. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellence in performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Monaghan. That's netsuite.com slash Monaghan to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Monaghan. You do a great job of that when you share your cancer story and getting divorced. For me as a reader, relating that back to empathy and understanding and how it helps you with leading people and connecting with people you work with. And I couldn't agree more from my own experience with getting divorced. Having a baby and getting divorced made me the best and strongest leader I'd ever been in my career because I finally could understand and empathize with people. Yeah, I talk about that in the context of before I got divorced, if I'm perfectly honest, I discussed this in a book because I don't want to come across as a hero, that I, because I supposedly powered through everything in my childhood, now I'm a hotshot 26-year-old press secretary of the mayor. I have all these supposed accolades. I'm healed, by the way. Mom's in the rearview mirror. You know what I mean? I'm fine. And when somebody would go through something, I'd be like, what are, you, what are you talking about? In fact, when I had cancer, testicular cancer, my first reaction was that of being discovered, which is so crazy. I was so worried that people were going to judge me as now walking dead, that they were going to take everything that I had earned for me in a very like tribalistic way. Like, and my whole objective was to cover it up. And I, I, I remember how day after surgery, I guess I have surgery, you know, remove my testicle after finding out, you know, 24 hours earlier that I have to. I'm like, what? I mean, it's, it takes a while to process the loss of that part of your anatomy. Like, really? Like, what does this entail? But it ha you have to move quick. And then um, I went home and then 
immediately once the pain meds wore off, I was like, I'm going to lose my job. Somebody's going to take my spot. I got, I'm going to be back eating government cheese. I'm going to be back in landlord tenant court on Queens Boulevard. And then I went the next night, there was a dinner with the coaches and I showed up at the dinner with an ice pack in between my legs. You know, I wouldn't really talked about it. And then, um, I made a joke, a little toast. I'm like, hey, everybody. I was like, let me roll out my new moniker. And I said, from now on, I want to be known as half the balls, twice the man. You know, now I thought that was like really tough. They probably were like, what is the matter with this kid? I did get dog tags made with that. But my, 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 my point is, if I could show up to the office having just had testicular cancer and had this surgery, then you better suppress your divorce. All these other things that I thought were secondary that you should have gotten over. So what I, the reason why I bring this up, it's kind of a little convoluted, contradictory. I bring that up in the book to say, number one, that is not something to be admired when executives, you know, act like they could shoulder everything. Cause now you're telegraphing to your team. We cannot accommodate whatever it is you're going through. And then two, the hypocrisy that I wasn't able to extend embassy to other, other people, especially around, you know, divorce until I went through it. When I went through it, it crushed me and brought me to my knees that, you know, the fear of loss of you know, children and all these other things. But also I had been known as the kid who was always doing better, faster. I was Doogie Howser, a TV show from the 80s, you know, uh, about a 14-year-old doctor. I was that kid. That was my nickname. So suddenly my, identify, my identity had become enmeshed with this notion of you know, doing things faster. And now I was taken away from me. And I talk about how fragile we are when we allow our identity to be associated with our track record of success as to who we are. And so I wanted to be honest in the book about these things we don't talk about, like the, as an executive, just how corrosive it is when you try to adopt the hero status and what you're really modeling. And after I went through divorce and had a bit of an, you know, what I believe like an uh, aberration one night, I'm spiritual, but not particularly, you know, one religion over another, but I really felt like I heard the voice of God say to me in the middle of the night, Matthew, you know, you are okay. It was the first time I began to realize that we are born whole and we're not dependent both on my track record or both on being validated by another human being and began to reconstruct my identity and self-worth based upon its own merit, you know, and the fact that I have everything I need. So, but the overall point of that chapter is be careful what you're modeling to your team. When you think you're being a stoic and, a, and, and heroic, you might be actually forcing everyone to push their pain down. Oh, it's so true. And now in hindsight, looking back on, on the leaders I've worked with and who I showed up as, the closer I became to my people were those moments that you actually were vulnerable. You become so much more, people are pulled towards you when they see, when you share your pain, when you share your shame, like you said, because they finally know they're not al alone and it's acceptable and, and that you're going to help be there to encourage them. So thank you for sharing that. I love this idea of acting on lightning, not waiting for thunder. Can you break that down for us? So it's a nice way to package up how to identify opportunity as a metaphor, right? So there's a great, great essay, if anyone out there hasn't read it, by Emerson. It's a piece of writing I return to constantly. Uh, it's called Self-Reliance. And the big, the big uh, theme of the essay is that we all have these um, spontaneous insights that, that are rendered to us by, you know, providence and divine. But because we lack respect for ourselves and our insights from time to time, we reject them. And then we wait till they come back to us and we are forced to take our own ideas from another. All of us have seen this. Maybe it's you're watching an infomercial at two in the morning, like, damn, I had that idea. Or you're watching Shark Tank and you're like, I had that idea. 
but I didn't have the courage to pursue it or the respect of myself to value it, right? So I talked, okay, how do we identify a proprietary insight that's worth pursuing? And you have to, I believe, cultivate your mind first by developing that self-respect and then understanding what opportunity is. So I, opportunity, it appears like a flash of lightning. Not everybody saw it unless you were looking for it, but you distinctly saw that flash. What do you do next? You either begin to pursue it because you value that insight and value you and you start taking steps in that direction, or you raise the bar to action and you wait for validation from others, thunder. But by the time you hear thunder, which is a five second delay, right, then it's obvious to everybody else. So I'm trying to make the point that true opportunity arise before the tipping point of evidence. And you have to get comfortable if you really want to have breakout success, figure out how do I act on the lightning? and not need the thunder. So it's my way of, I 100% believe this as a life philosophy. It's the exact reason why I am where I am, but it's very lonely when you have to act on lightning. There's nobody to talk to. And the mere fact that if opportunity and lightning was obvious to everyone, there wouldn't be any arbitrage, right? Everybody would be acting on it. Everybody would see it. It reminded me when I was reading that part, so much of faith, of just having this faith, the unseen, this belief, and or another way to look at it would be, through this idea of manifestation and belief before seeing, feeling before seeing. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think it is. It is really faith. And I tried to package it in language that isn't necessarily about religion or spiritual in case people reject that. It's just fact, right? Like when, when you hear those words, you realize, oh, that is right. It's an opportunity because not everybody's acting on it. Well, there would be no Delta anymore, right? Everybody would, would have all exactly the same information. And so, and then training yourself to realize like, it doesn't matter if others validate it. Why would they same going back to my burn the boats moment? Why, how does it tie into high school and the steps of Cardoza? Well, they didn't have perfect information that I had. Number one, I had a, I had the, the strangest model of my behavior, which was my mom. Here I have this brilliant person who inadvertently has a, is a, a got a GED, which she didn't intend at age 38. But by seeing that and modeling it, it opened up an, a portal to another world where saying, wait, I could deliberately get a GED, right? The loophole that I was taking advantage of is fundamentally a rejection of everything they've bought into, right? This idea that I need four years of high school to perform at college, where I was like, well, I don't really think that's probably true. <laughs> like, I think that I think I could learn it on my own and fill in the gaps. And then they would have to accept the idea that um, subsistence and survival is more important than this principle of finishing the four years. Well, that survival and taking care of my mother was more important than the idea that I would have a stigma of being a high school dropout. Like they would have to subscribe to all that. And then why would I put all that energy when the decision I was about to make was hard already, right? So I talk about this in a book and in, and in life generally, when you're lobbying for the approval of others or lobbying to bring others along, you always have to ask yourself, why am I doing that? Am I doing that because their buy-in is necessary to advance my insight? Or am I doing that to assuage me that I might be wrong because I'm nervous, right? And at the end of the day, most of the times you don't need their approval. You're doing it because you're insecure. PSA to small businesses ready for an exclusive offer? Just Work supports small businesses with simple, seamless solutions like integrated payroll. Now for a limited time only, try out their payroll plan for one month free. As a reliable and flexible platform, JustWorks earns back time so you can focus on running your small business with big confidence. You've got enough on your plate. Save time with payroll that checks all the boxes, like automated payments, tax calculations, withholdings, and expert support. 
And the best part, no hidden fees. Designed to be flexible, JustWorks can support teams of one to as many as your small business hires, including contractors. In just 30 minutes, set up payroll that streamlines paying your team, saves time, mitigates errors, and is desktop and mobile friendly. You can even integrate time tracking and benefits that support running your small business with big confidence. Don't miss your chance to get one month free by visiting JustWorks.com slash confidence. Secure the limited time offer and start letting JustWorks run your payroll so you don't have to. Start your free month now at JustWorks.com slash confidence. Okay, there's one other example that you shared in the book that I thought was so eye-opening. It was research around being blindfolded and taking a basketball shot and people encouraging or not encouraging you. Can you break that down? I had never heard it before and it it was so interesting. Yeah, there's a a show out there called Brain Games. It didn't last very long, but I love this show and it's always looking at these different topics and trying to understand the psychology of motivation and whatnot. So one of the episodes they had, they were trying to understand what's the empirical impact of people cheering for you or rooting against you. And so in, in one of the experiments, they had a woman come along who was terrible at basketball and she went ahead and she tried to do a couple of, you know, 10 free throws. I think she got zero of them. She was awful, right? Like did just air balls everywhere. And then they put on a blindfold and there was a crowd around and she knew it. And the crowd was instructed to cheer multiple times when even though she got an air ball. And she was so like enamored with her own performance. I can't believe I did that. And then they went ahead and they took the the, uh, blindfolds off. She shot 10 more times. She shot four baskets. This is a person who couldn't shoot a basket if her life depended upon it. And she was able to get a 40% hit rate. I just thought that was like so incredible in an empirical way. And then they did the reverse. They had somebody who was a great free thrower, threw a bunch, whatever like that. Then the crowd did, they, they booed even though they were hitting them when they, were, when they were blindfolded and their performance degraded. And then they actually did an elite athlete and the elite athlete's performance didn't change, which I thought was incredible because they had trained their mind to be able to handle both situations. And so it's a way of simply saying that the internal and external inputs do affect your performance. Like I'm not immune. immune. The work I put in is not in spite of me being you know, immune, actually is in spite of me being subjective to all these forces. I have to work on it, right? It's not, because I am intellectually curious. If somebody gives me feedback or is trying to tear me down, it's not like I dismiss it outright. I'm, I wanna make sure that there's something to extract that I could get better, but then I need to immunize it from making me suddenly a very bad free thrower, right? So it is a balance. And I talk in the book about how to strike that balance, how to take feedback, how to process information, how to process failure, but not let it cripple you. Oh, it's so good. You definitely break down haters in a way that I hadn't seen it as more useful and how you can turn it into a useful exercise for you, which I had not done before. So thank you for doing that. And one other thing I wanted to highlight, a key takeaway for me personally, I love you shared that when you do have a plan B, research shows that you are actually not as motivated to pursue with that primary goal. I'm not sure. I don't remember what school. Maybe it was in Wharton. Maybe it was Wharton Business School. And, and And you gave the example that they had two different test groups. One said, they said, here's your plan. Go after this one goal. And the other one, they said, here's your plan. Go after this one goal. But you also have a plan B in case you need it available. And how demotivated and quickly they wrapped things up and gave up on that second team. However, that first team delivered on, on their initial goal. Yeah, I love that study because I think people could understand if you have a real plan B when you're pursuing something hard, like it's 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 a really fully developed backup plan. 
how that could actually erode some of your ability. Like that's an intuitive thing we could all understand. What this study showed was that even contemplating it, because all they said to the students, you can think about your plan B. You can think about the possibility that you don't get it. There was no efforts to to go in that direction. It was purely theoretical. And that materially impacted their motivation and their likelihood of being successful. Their performance materially degraded. So the point of that is the mere presence of even a backup plan affects your performance. Now, when I talk about this, a lot of people, and I'm sure the reviews will say it, will reflexively recoil and say, this is irresponsible. Like you're basically saying that you should just go all in. And well, what about people who have to pay the rent? People have children. You know, what if it what if it fails? I talk a lot in the book about going, burning the boats doesn't mean burning the boats with you on it. You know, it means actually, what does it take to you to fully commit under the circumstances and a framework for you to go ahead and do that? One of the core elements of it is to process risk factors. The reason why we don't fully commit often is because it's not because we are necessarily afraid of what's going to happen. It's because we haven't processed the worst case scenario and and assimilated that information and realized all right, I'll be all right, right? Like I'll get another job or whatever whatever the rationalization is. And so I think most people bypass the act of, of processing the risk because they don't actually want to be confronted with the decision. So, uh, so part of the burn the boats philosophy is yes, mitigate risk. Yes, think through the worst case scenario. Yes, make provisions so that you could feed yourself and your family because once you've done that, you'll perform better. You won't have the same anxiety. So burn the boats is not a a blueprint for irresponsible risk. It's a blueprint for synthesizing risk so that you can go all in without worrying about the downside because you've already processed it. Oh, I love that. And so true. I have so lived that and I couldn't agree more. Who did you write this book for? Oh, I love that question. Um, I really do because I feel like I, I feel like when you see the title, somebody will think, oh, it's jingoistic. You know, it's not for me. It's belligerent. It's, you know, some some white male businessman, you know, telling me about what to do. I wrote this for hopefully, first and foremost, the unseen. For somebody out there who says the die is cast, who thinks from because of the circumstances I was born into, because of some of the bad decisions I made that put me into circumstances I regret, you know, it's too late, right? I, I, I wanted to strip myself bare to give anyone any entry point to my journey and the journey of 50 other people to say, all right, well, he dropped out of high school and got there or he had cancer or he got divorced. You know, again, it's not an autobiography because I'm not as interested in my own story as I am interested in me as a vessel to transmit this idea. I wrote this book for anybody out there who frankly thinks it's too late or it's not for them. And and, um, you'll notice, I don't know if you noticed, but I begin with a female entrepreneur. I end with a female entrepreneur. My life has been guided by strong women. The first was my mother, who have been inspirational. So I hope when someone reads this book, say, this is a more thorough compendium of success than I've seen in a long time. And there's somebody in there that I could you know, grab onto. One of my favorite parts of the book was at the end of my Harvard class, I was talking to two students, Black women, and they were making a really interesting nuance point. We had an entrepreneur in the class and he was talking belligerently and gesticulating and using a curse word every two seconds, kind of breaking the decorum of you know, the August Harvard Business School. And I thought it was theatrical and entertaining. It's his style. And one of the students says to me, you know, I could never talk like that in this class. And I was like, well, why? She said a couple of reasons. One, I'm a woman. Two, I would be, I'm, I'm black woman and, and I would be judged and I'm not only concerned about me being judged, I would then therefore be ruining it for every woman who comes after me in the same. Ooh. And I said, wait, tell me more about that. And she says, I carry the entire weight 
of my race and gender on me when I come into this room. And it made me realize, wow, despite what I've ever been through, right? You know, all the poverty and all that, I'm still born as a white man with the advantages that come into it, right? And I never had to represent anyone but Matt Higgins. Like, there is no stakes, you know what I'm saying? And here's somebody who not only has to break through, has to burn the boats, but also has to make sure in doing so, she represents, you know, her community. I put that story in there for a reason to say, I hear you and I see you. And that is true. And it is a way to distinguish yourself from me. Nonetheless, you wish to break through. You wish to burn the boats. You don't want to hedge and hesitate. You want great things for yourself. So let's see you and let's hear you and let's acknowledge you. And then let's do something about it. So that to me is one of my favorite parts of the book because it is easy to say, to remove yourself and say, well, that's not for me. You were able to pull that off for whatever structural advantage. Like, of course I have structural advantages, but at the same time, we still both want the same things. So that's who the book is for. Well, I will tell you, being an avid reader, I love the book. The book is, was so eye-opening for me, so helpful. If you are going through any period in your life where you're questioning things, you think it's too late for you, or you want to make a leap and you're not sure how or, or, or what next step to take, get Burn the Boats. Matt Higgins, where can we get Burn the Boats? Where can people find you? How can people catch up with you? Burntheboatsbook.com is my website. It's on Amazon. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I feel like it's like a warm bath. Uh, you know, yes. I'm on Twitter and everything else, but if I'm honest, I'm on everywhere else reluctantly. And LinkedIn is amazing. So find me on LinkedIn. All right. Burn the boats, guys. It's by Matt Higgins. Matt, thank you so much for writing the book and thank you for being here. No, thank you for having me. This was amazing. All right, guys. Until next week, keep creating your confidence. You know I will be. on this journey with me. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast that I am so excited about, Negotiate Your Best Life, hosted by Rebecca Zung, a part of the Yap Media Network. As a globally renowned narcissist negotiation expert and an attorney recognized by U.S. News as a best lawyer in America, Rebecca shares her invaluable insights and strategies for navigating life's toughest negotiations. By drawing from her own experiences and the wisdom of her high-profile guests, such as Bob Proctor, Mark Victor Hansen, John Gordon, and Rebecca delivers empowering advice that will inspire you to reclaim control of your life. Negotiate Your Best Life is all about how to negotiate your way to greatness. She provides practical guidance on how to break free from toxic relationships, stand up against injustice, and transform chaos into freedom, possibility, and purpose. Many times, the first negotiation you do is with your own in the morning. In the morning is when you wake up, and that's when Negotiate Your Best Life is time for you. It's about to find your way to greatness, conquering obstacles, and creating the life you truly deserve. Get ready to slay thrive and unlock your full potential. Don't believe me? I'm going to go ahead and share some of the reviews that are out there so you can hear and you can believe too. You have helped me so much these last few weeks. I was with a narcissist for two years. She drove me to the point I wanted to take my own life. Listening to you has made a massive difference and now I know what I'm with. Thank you, Rebecca. Now the recovery. 
Thank you for gifting the knowledge to believe in myself again. You have unknowingly helped me legally represent myself through criminal, federal, and civil court proceedings with a narcissist. There would be so many people around the world that you're helping without even knowing like me. You saved my life. Emma, 35 years old, Australia. If you are ready to stand up against injustice and transform the chaos in your life into freedom, possibility, and purpose, then check out Negotiate Your Best Life now. Subscribe to Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.